So this rider comes on a black horse with a pair of scales in his hands. That's a reminder to us that during the tribulation period, there will be severe shortages and that food will need to be rationed. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We have been challenged over the past several weeks as we have been studying the Revelation, a book that is largely prophetic, but whose central theme is Jesus Christ, His return, His retribution, and His eventual restoration. The past several days have been spent in chapter 6 as Dr. Brogy has been looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These are introduced to us as, looking forward, we see the unraveling of a seven-sealed scroll that details a number of judgments imposed during a time known as the Tribulation. Having already looked at the rider on the white horse, who we have seen as the Antichrist, and the riders of the red and black horses, who represent war and famine respectively, we'll spend this week looking at the fourth rider who comes on an ashen horse, and whose judgment is death. Let's rejoin Pastor Brogy as he brings us up to speed and begins reading from verse 1 of Revelation 6. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now let me bring you into the immediate context. God gave us the outline in Revelation 1.19. He told John to write about the things he had seen, and so he does that. Reminds us of that in Revelation chapter 1 where we have a picture of the glorified Christ. He tells him to write about the things that are, and we see that in chapters 2 and 3, where he writes of seven real literal churches that were in existence in the first century when he wrote this book around 95 AD. But then he asks him to write about the things after these things, in the future, After the church age is over, a door is opened up in heaven. And we saw that open door in Revelation 4 and verse 1. And God brings the church up. And we saw that church, the body of Christ, represented by the 24 elders. And in chapter 4, they're praying and praising God around His throne. And in chapter 5, we saw God the Father hand the scroll to God the Son, the title deed of the earth, which He will break open and claim for himself 
that which he bought at his cross. Now, when we open the first four seals, Jesus summons, in essence, these four riders on a white horse, a red horse, a black horse. And today we will look at the ashen horse. They come like a storm, four ghoulish, gruesome, ghastly riders who will bring some awful judgments that will come upon this world that the world has yet to see. This is in the future. And a storm begins. And this storm, before we're done with this chapter, will be called the wrath of the Lamb. Let's review for a moment. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, Come, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. We discovered that this was the Antichrist. This is the one mentioned in Daniel 9 that gives us the schematic for the book of Revelation. There he's called the prince who is to come. We learn that he will make a firm covenant with Israel to protect her from her enemies. So his career begins as a peacemaker. We discover that he comes as a man of peace, and so he's pictured in these verses as having a bow but with no arrows. It implies that he will conquer the world without bloodshed. He will accomplish this, I'm sure, by providing answers to the problems that the world will be facing. He comes on a white horse, just like the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19, comes on a white horse. And that does not surprise us because Satan is the great imitator. He likes to come in the place of Christ. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And so this man is a great deceiver. We call him most popularly by the name that John gives him in his first epistle, Antichrist. There's over 30 titles given for this man. The most common title in the Revelation, he's called the beast. But the word anti in Greek can mean instead of or against. Well, the former is largely in view. This one comes in the place of Christ, and he gives solutions to the world. And they will no doubt embrace what he says. How do I know that? Because the Bible teaches it. The world will fall at this man's feet. The world will give him allegiance. The world will believe his explanations, maybe beginning with why millions of born-again evangelical Christians are gone. He'll come with a plan to bring peace to this world. And when he comes, the people of this world will honor him. When he comes, they will see him as a savior. They will be desperate for answers. And yet, they have rejected God's holy son, and they will, in, they will embrace this imposter. And he's such a great imposter that even a few commentaries think that this is Jesus riding on the white horse, and they confuse him with Christ in Revelation 19. But I went through a number of distinct differences <clears throat> between the rider in Revelation 19 and this rider. Jesus is opening the seven seal scrolls. He's letting these riders be released. This is not Christ. He's commanding these riders to go. If this were Christ, he would be in terrible, terrible company. And so he comes with great deception. He comes as a man of peace, but he also comes as a man of power. The scripture says in verse 2, he went out conquering and to conquer. And the leaders of this world will give their allegiance to him. And some of the New Testament texts, the Bible says he comes with signs and powers and wonders. 
And the world will embrace this imposter. They've denied that right to the king of kings. They've denied that right to the savior of men. They've denied that right to the son of God. But they will give that right to this child of hell. He comes as a man of peace. He comes as a man of power, but he also comes as a man of pretense. He is a great deceiver. He portrays himself to be one kind of person when in reality he is very, very different. I mean, we've almost been programmed to receive the man on the white horse with the white hat as the good guy. But this is the most evil, dictatorial leader the world has yet to see and will ever see. And so with the first command, the first horseman is ordered to come in God's perfect timing. We're to see God's timing all the way through the revelation that God is in control, that God is sovereign. And so verse 3 says, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And now once again, the second horseman is ordered and he comes again under God's command, under God's sovereign control. Verse four says, and another, a red horse went out to him who sat on it. It was granted to take peace from the earth. This is when it turns really ugly. Antichrist initially comes with a plan of peace, but that peace treaty is quickly exchanged for a sword. Initially, just before war breaks out, the world will be saying peace and safety. They'll say, we have our man. We have our Savior. Everything is wonderful. And we have a new sense of security that we've always wanted. And he will have convinced the world that he is that man. But Paul tells us while they are saying peace and safety, suddenly, suddenly is actually the first word in that section of that verse in 1 Thessalonians. It happens so quick. Suddenly, destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. I believe that the nations of this world are unknowingly, or maybe some knowingly, preparing for such a leader. There's a push for a world economy. There's a push for a global unity, for a one world kind of government. But when this initial false sense of security comes, it's going to be followed by the wrath of the Lamb. Remember, the church has been taken up. The door in heaven has been opened. And so beginning in chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book, we will see scores of Jewish terms. The Lamb of God, that's a Passover term. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a very Jewish term. And so we read in verse 4, and another, a red horse went out to him who sat on it. It was granted notice to take peace from the earth. It was granted, again, God's sovereignty. It was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. Now the color of this horse perfectly fits what this rider does. God doesn't just pull these colors out of the air. There's uh, several words in Koine Greek for red, but God chooses the word poros. And it's the word red that is typically associated with destruction and violence. It's actually the same word that is used to modify the red dragon in Revelation 12, who, of course, is the devil himself. It's a picture of the wanton bloodshed, the fiery red color of blood that is going to come across the planet. He comes on this blood red horse, and the Bible says here, a great sword was given to him. Great to underscore the extent of the warfare. Probably some weapon of mass destruction. And the scripture says that this man was permitted to take peace from the earth. 
Not peace from Israel, not peace from the Roman Empire, but peace, ectes gaze, peace from the earth. God is going to bring something that is worldwide in nature. We've had some so-called world wars, but they really, in the truest sense, were not world wars. This will be a world war because it is going to encompass the entire planet. The Bible says that it was granted to him that men would slay one another. And he uses the word slay. It's a term of brutality of someone who slaughters or butchers another person. Peace is taken from the earth. This is a war of an incredible magnitude. He who sat was permitted to take peace from the earth. He's given permission like the man on the white horse. The man on the red horse is permitted. He's granted certain freedoms. God only allows these riders to do what He allows them to do. They are corralled in God's sovereign fence. And listen, this uh, ordained corral is still going to bring incredible destruction when the light of the world is removed, when the church is taken out, and one of the functions of light is to dispel darkness. When the church is gone, when the salt of the earth is removed and the function of salt is to preserve when the church that still even in its weakness today preserves righteousness when the last vestige of good is gone and when the restrainer a term used to describe the holy spirit when he lifts his hand of authority you're going to see human nature unfold in a way like you've never seen it before jesus said nation will rise against nation the word nation is the word ethnoi or ethnos in the singular. It refers to ethnicities. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. That refers to geopolitical boundaries, different countries. It's going to be a war that will include race wars and class wars and country wars and religious wars. There's going to be wars across the planet. And add to the fact that there'll be no fathers and no churches that will be praying for their soldiers, no mothers on their knees, no chaplains out in the foxholes pleading with soldiers to get right with God because as we will see coming to the seventh chapter, nearly as fast as people are saved, they are executed for their faith. Now in verse 5, we meet the horseman on the black horse. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The third seal is broken, and another rider makes his appearance. And as this slide reminds us, you can see that these first three horsemen come in the first half of the tribulation. There's a prophecy given in Daniel 9. It serves really as a schematic along with other chapters in Daniel for the whole book of Revelation. That's why we went chapter by chapter and verse by verse through Daniel before we preached the Revelation. And so Daniel gives a 70-week prophecy. And the first 69 weeks are fulfilled from a decree that goes out by a king to rebuild the city and the walls of Jerusalem, and it brings us to what's called Palm Sunday. Jesus said, this was your day. It was the very day that the prophets wrote of. 
It's an incredible prophecy. But then there is a space of time between the 69th week and the 70th week because of Israel's rejection of her Messiah. And so right now, God is building His church. The church was not in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church age is unfolding, but the church age will end, and then the clock will begin ticking again for the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Just as the book of Revelation teaches, it is precisely seven years long. And just as Revelation, just as Jesus, just as Daniel taught, it's divided into two equal halves of 1,260 days, 42 months, or three and a half years. And so these four horsemen, these sealed judgments, all happen in the first three and a half years. Now, this man comes on a black horse, and black historically and biblically, is a color of mourning. When people go to a funeral today, they don't dress up in their bright white clothes. They come typically in dark clothes as an expression of mourning and sadness for those whom they are seeking to console. That's true in the Jewish mind, but it's beyond just death. It is also used of mourning in the Scripture of someone who's mourning because of trouble that has come upon them as a people. And very often that trouble that is accompanied with famine. And I gave you many examples. Let me give you just a few again to refresh your memory. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 14 said this, that which came as the word of the, of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They, meaning the gates that languish, they sit on the ground in mourning. The Hebrew Bible reads, the gates, or they, uh, are, are black on the land. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us to say the gates are black on the land. That's a Hebrew idiom. There's a lot of idioms in the Bible, just like there are in different cultures. In the South, sometimes we use the idiom, oh, he's between a rock and a hard place. Now, if you're from up north, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to you, but from the south, you know exactly what it means. So idioms need to be defined. And so very often in the Bible, when there's a Hebrew idiom that's used, if we don't use it in our culture, then the translators will interpret the idiom. And so the King James doesn't really interpret it, it just translates it. It says, the gates are black onto the ground. In other words, it's saying the people who are in public are dejected, they mourn, they put on black on account of this national distress. And then Jeremiah describes this distress. Their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated, and they cover their heads because the ground is cracked. For there has been no rain on the land. The farmers have been put to shame. They have covered their heads. So understand, God is not just pulling these colors out of the air. White, red, black are each given with a particular reason. And black is often the color for mourning in Scripture that is associated with famine. Another example, lamentations. Jeremiah, the crying prophet, wrote, the tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little one asks for bread, but no one breaks it for them. And then in describing this awful lament, he said, literally, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. In other words, the color was gone. Their good health had dissolved. 
Another example, the prophet Joel. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. Again, the King James just interprets without translating, uh, excuse me, translates without interpreting, and it follows virtually the Hebrew text. Before their faces, the people shall be much pained. All their faces gather blackness. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot to a Jewish person. Very often in Scripture, black is beautiful, like in the Song of Solomon. But sometimes black is a sign of mourning that comes from famine. And so God uses the black horse to describe famine. But even if you hadn't studied the Old Testament, and remember I told you that as you read the Revelation, one of the reasons it's difficult for some to understand is because 300 of the 404 verses come out of the Old Testament without ever quoting the specific book. So there's allusions all the way through Revelation to the Old Testament. But many times you can figure it out just from the context. Listen to the next verse in Revelation. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. So you know from what happens that this black horse is going to be associated with famine. I looked and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Now, very clearly, it's not by accident that the black horse follows a red horse because famine invariably follows war like night follows day. Again, we're going to discover that this is the precise order that Jesus gave of the events in the Olivet Discourse, and I'll show you that in a few moments. So this rider comes on a black horse with a pair of scales in his hands. That's a reminder to us that during the tribulation period, there will be severe shortages and that food will need to be rationed. Now, we know very little of that in our day, especially in America. Even in America, if you're poor and the cupboards are empty, you can usually go somewhere in any given day to get a good meal to fill your belly. But after the white horse, after the red horse... Famine is going to come upon the earth. Millions and millions of people are going to die from hunger. And with inadequate diet comes disease and despair and death. Again, we know little of that. But when he broke this third seal, the Bible says that this rider on the black horse had a pair of scales in his hand. He has some good old-fashioned scales, something we don't use much anymore. And notice what this rider is saying. Verse 6, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, the Greek word here for quart or measure in some of your Bibles represents the size of enough milled wheat in the first century to bake a single loaf of bread. And it would take a denarius which in the first century was the average full day pay for, for a 10-hour day, it would take a denarius to be able to buy at this time just a single loaf of bread. So think about that. Now, the average family in America, 2.4, and the birth rate, according to our government last week, says continues to drop, is small compared to other countries of the world. The Middle East, where it's 7.5, and Africa, where it's 5.6. But think about it. A man works hard all day. He can buy one loaf of bread, and it needs to feed not only him, but the whole family. A quart of wheat for a denarius, or he says, and three quarts of barley 
for a denarius. Wheat is the food from which most bread was made. Unless you were poor, you used barley. Barley was the grain that was used typically to feed the animals. And so in modern terms, a man will work hard all day. At the end of the day, there's just enough food for one person. So assuming you still have some care for your family, instead of buying one loaf, you buy three loaves of barley, or maybe you buy a box of saltine crackers, to put it in modern terms. But don't miss this image. A man is going to work all day to have just enough good food for one person, or he can buy enough food that would feed an animal for three. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an awful time. And think about those people who cannot work, who are unable to work. Probably they will starve to death. And the fact that it will take a day's wages to buy such a small amount of food reminds us of the soaring prices that will be in place. The problem of hunger is going to be awful. Verse 6, he then adds, and do not damage the oil and the wine. That's an interesting, explicit instruction that God gives to this writer. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, unlike wheat and barley that represent the necessities of life, at this time in human history, the oil and the wine represent the luxuries of life. It's the luxuries of the rich. And so the poor will get by with just enough bread, but there will be some who will have oil and wine. Now, I don't know if that will be countries like America and other parts of the world will have less or will be certain communities. Uh, rich is a relative term I recognize, but comparatively speaking, everyone in America compared to the rest of the world is rich. But the point here is you're going to see luxury and poverty existing side by side. Remember Jesus when four of his disciples approached him on one occasion, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he sat them there on the Mount of Olives, which is kind of ground zero. It's the mountain of which he ascended into heaven. It's the mountain to which he will literally physically come again. And he reminds us really of both of these truths. We will see it, we'll study it further later on, that there will be famine and plenty existing side by side. Jesus, for instance, in likening his return from heaven for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Two unequal conditions of famine that he mentions earlier in that chapter and plenty existing side by side. Now, unlike the great famine of 1315 that affected uh, parts of Europe where the wealthy feasted and the masses starved, this famine will be so widespread and allowing the luxury items to remain, God is going to bring a judgment on the rich. Think about this for a moment. Think your way through this all the godly rich, and there are many godly rich people, they'll all be gone. They will be raptured. And so the only rich that are left are the selfish, self-centered rich. And can you imagine what people will do to some of those folks? It will be a built-in judgment itself. It is easy to see situations these days that are setting the stage for the type of world that Dr. Brogy has described. In the middle of pandemics and riots and moves towards socialism, the Antichrist is preparing to enter the scene. 
The good news is that those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will avoid the worst of this as the rapture of the church takes place prior to this time of tribulation. If you're not absolutely certain that when you die or when the rapture comes that you'll spend eternity with Jesus Christ, let us send you a pamphlet and DVD message entitled, Would You Like God as Your Friend? It's yours absolutely free for the asking. Just call 877-787-7478 and ask for Would You Like God as Your Friend? And to listen again to today's message, The Pale Horse of Devastation, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Join us again tomorrow for part two of this message from the Revelation as we search the Scriptures.